It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro here once again in the front row. As always, behind the scenes, it's our producer, creator, and director, J.R. Quitman. And we thank you for watching our previous episodes, and we thank you for subscribing as well. Continue to do so. We have some great episodes planned coming up, including this one here, episode number 28. It is the godfather of small ball. Yes, that's what he refers to himself in his new book, Muggsy, Tyrone Muggsy Bogues. You know him from Wake Forest. You know him from the Charlotte Hornets, doing some great things as well in the community with his foundation, and also talks a lot of Space Jam, the original Space Jam. He starred in it along with Michael Jordan. He'll share some of the stories from that with us as well. It's episode 28, and it features the smallest player ever to play in the NBA at 5'3". It is Tyrone Muggsy Bogues. Uh, first of all, I appreciate you joining us here today. It's a, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I know you're on your book tour right now, uh, your new book that's out currently, uh, Muggsy, uh, from Triumph Books. And we're going to really dive into some of the stories, I'm sure, that are in that book um, and touch on those. But we want people to obviously go out and, and get that book as well. And, and for you, let's start at the very beginning. You're born in Baltimore back in, in 1965. Uh, you grew up in the Lafayette Court project, so it's, it wasn't a great area for you. What was life like early on for you growing up there? Uh, it was a challenge, you know, just like as a kid, you know, growing up, um, every time you went outside your door, it was a, you know, it was a challenge basically just to survive. But as a kid, it was just normal for us, you know, because that was things that we wanted to do in terms of just want to be outdoors. Um, but, in, you know, I wouldn't regret anything that I had to endure uh, through that process because it made me the individual that I was, that I am today. Uh, but that's, you know, that was the atmosphere um, and that was the environment and that was what we was faced with. Part of that environment, I guess, was drugs, was was crime, obviously. You were you were shot as a kid when you were five. Is that correct? Yeah, at the age of five, man, at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, a fight broke out outside our apartment building and one of the kids took a rock and broke one of the stall on his window and he, he came out, went straight to his shed, grabbed his double barrel shotgun and just started shooting in the neighborhood. Fortunate enough, the bullet went over my head, but the unfortunately the buckshots hit my arms and my leg and you know, and I you know, I when I was able to, you know, recover from that incident, I think it really helped me um going forward. I think it really changed my mindset because I I remember so many kids used to be so cruel to me down on the court and uh, and by, you know, go, going through that dramatic experience, uh, those words was the least of my words when I went back down there. Yeah. Hospitalized at five years old. How tough was that? I mean, you know, what's going through your mind at such a young age when that's the case? Well, at first it was a very scary moment. I didn't think I was going to be part of the world anymore. Uh, but actually, once you realize it was just the bug shots and where they was located um, and they was capable of coming out, I still keep one in my arm for to kind of give me a reminder of where I've come from. Um, but, it, it, you know, it was, it was difficult, you know, especially as a kid. And, you know, back then, you know, just growing up in that atmosphere, you know, life expectancy was only at age 20 because, you know, seeing so many of your friends and so many people – you know, lose their life and so forth. Um, you didn't think, you know, anything beyond that was possible. So, uh, but uh, the game of basketball changed all of that. You know, it gave me a new vision in life and allowed me to, to, to visualize something much more than what I was faced with. Obviously, basketball worked out, but why was it basketball? Because your parents were, were big parents. I'm not a big guy myself, but, you know, why was it basketball? What gravitated you to that sport as opposed to some other sports? Well, it was one of the sports in the neighborhood, and wrestling was also one of my hobbies I loved doing, uh, playing baseball as well. Uh, wrestling and basketball became the two, mainly wrestling because it was no criteria. You know, if you were short, strong, or fast, and, um, and you, you know, you had that ability that allowed you to be, you know, a pretty good wrestler, and that was that. It happened to run into the same season with basketball, but basketball gravitated towards me because of, one – uh, I was so much interested in it and I wanted to learn. And then once I learned the fundamentals aspects of it and with that position that I had to play, what it all entailed, um, 
it became something I don't want to say relatively easy, but it became something uh, part of me and part of my growth in terms of how to lead and how to run a team and and how to develop uh, individual skills as well as yourself. So it, it became and then with the, the, the barriers, trying to break down those barriers, because not a, many people at all believe that a guy my size should be playing the game of basketball or trying to pursue it as a as a career. Yeah, what was it like? What kind of comments were you getting at the time when you were, again, you're falling in love with this sport. You saw maybe this was going to be your road out uh, of the projects there. But what what, what what were you hearing from people around you? Oh, well, you're crazy. Why are you going to focus on something that, you know, no one is going to give you a chance? You're too small. I mean, all the naysayers had all that um, negative uh, feedback in terms of what I was trying to do. And, and, and I understood. They just didn't know. And they just didn't have the understanding of what I was believing, what I was, you know, accomplishing along the way. Um, but for me, the confidence stayed within um, the belief, the vision never changed. Um, and I just want to continue to stay on that journey, stay on that path. And and by doing that, I can continue to break down the mindsets of those who believe that a kid my size shouldn't be pursuing this. And uh, each level that I went up and as I was continuing to have success, you know, I felt like I was kind of doing just that, you know, throwing it back in their face. Yeah, it's nice to be six, seven, six, eight, seven feet, play basketball. But with your size, I'm sure there were advantages as well. What did you learn that maybe you were better at in the game of basketball because of your your smaller stature? Well, understanding that I was closer to the basketball, you know, playing defense, being able to understand how to play defense and contain my man and make him work just to get the ball across half court and understanding that aspect of the game. And that's where it starts as a point guard, uh, being able to get into the offense as quickly as he possibly can. Um, when you disrupt that and you make it, you know, that much challenging, you know, it disrupt everything else is the timing off. So having that understanding allowed me to be able to be on the floor and be that type of impactful player that I wanted to be. And along with being able to be creative and running my team as well, making guys run you better. And at the same time, being able to uh, get yours off as well. So having that understanding really, truly, you know, I always say it was the IQ level. It was the, the understanding of the game and how to play it the right way allowed me to be able to be, you know, impactful as I was. I'm sure you learned that kind of rec ball and then it eventually led into to school ball. Uh, was there no doubt that you were going to be a member of that high school team by the time your high school uh, years came around? Oh, absolutely. I mean, those are the guys – I mean, we've been playing with throughout my entire career. I mean, it just once we got to high school and Reggie Williams and I, you know, we played on every team ever since we was nine years old, all the way up until we was 18, until that time to go to high school and where we all got separated. But fortunate enough for them, they made it all to Dunbar and I was still left out on the outside because they couldn't find, locate my records. Um, but, you know, that that was always been a vision, have been the dream. You know, I always felt like if I played against the best, I had success against the best, you must be included with the best. So being able to have that type of understanding, that type of success, I, f I felt like, you know, I belong on that stage with Dunbar, you know, playing, running that program. Yeah, the Dunbar Poets uh, played for Bob Wade, and you mentioned Reggie Williams, David Wingate, the late Reggie Lewis, your senior and your junior years, you were undefeated. 29-0 your junior year, 31-0 your senior year. Obviously, you had a lot of talent there. What what made you guys so good together? Well, the, the skill set for one, um, but the understanding of Coach Wade having so much talent, knowing how to manifest that into one, and where he checked the egos at the door and, and being able to take that type of talent. It wasn't just the four of us because we had the other 11 guys was fortunate enough to get division one scholarships. So that's how talented our team was. Um, and I always said that the recruits didn't come to our games, the recruiters, because we used to be teams pretty soundly. Uh, they came to our practice uh, to watch us play against one another in order to get a better assessment of what our skill set truly was. And that's how I would always kind of felt like when they come in to watch whomever they come in to see, I want to make sure they talked about me on the way out. So um, that was a big sticking point for me in terms of how I wanted to be recruited. Again, undefeated your junior and senior years. Were there any games that were close? 
that you remember? Yes, there was uh, one game was close, um, and it was happening to be a very uh, good player from New York. His name was Kenny Hutchison, and that was the game that we had a tournament in Pennsylvania. Reggie Williams had fouled out. And Reggie Lewis, you know, the late Reggie Lewis stepped in and there was no letdown whatsoever. He came in to save the day. And uh, I think we wound up beating about eight or nine points. And that probably the only team we beat less than double figures. Now, everybody else, you know, was pretty much a blowout. Even the number one team in the country, Camden, New Jersey, who we played, uh, we wound up beating them by 25. And you were the number one team, uh, according to USA Today, the the national champs in the United States. I mean, is that, you know, you, you want to be a basketball player and you do that and you guys are undefeated. Is that still a big memory of yours, your high school days and what you did in your junior and senior years? Absolutely, because that's where it started. I mean, that's where, you know, you got an opportunity to play with so much talent and you felt like wherever you've gone or wherever you go, um, if that ever take part again, then you're able to – blend right in with that type of talent um, because it, a lot of people are not capable of playing with a lot of talent on one team. And when you have that, ego's got to be checked. Everybody got to have a role to play. And uh, and we all got to be the best at that as we possibly can. And I think having that type of mixture of talent on one team was very dangerous and very potent, uh, especially for us during that time. Yeah, incredible, incredible run, like you said, that you had there. And so it's time to go to, to college, time to get recruited. As you said, all those players getting recruited, getting Division One scholarships. What was it like for you? What was the recruitment process like for you that eventually led you to Wake Forest? Well, you know, I was being recruited by a couple ACC schools. Virginia was one, but they had Ricky Stokes at the time, and they wanted to redshirt me. Uh, Seton Hall was coming at me pretty heavily, Coach B.J. Calissimo. So the Big East was – you know, it was pretty popular at the time as well with with uh, Syracuse and St. John as well as Georgetown. And my friends were there. Georgetown almost was a possibility, but Coach Thompson, he felt like he had Michael Jackson only as a sophomore, and he felt like he owed his commitment there. And then I think Reggie felt like Coach was just saying that, but, he, you know, he never really uh, took it very serious to want to really truly offer me that scholarship which I think if I would have gone there, we probably would have multiple uh, titles. Um, but I think Wake Forest, because of ACC, I felt like it was the best conference in the country, uh, playing against, you know, the likes of the, the the Kenny Smiths and the Keith Gatlins and the Michael Jordans and Mark Price of the world. I believe, like, again, as I said, I play against the best. You have success against the best. You must be included with the best. And just having that understanding and, uh, knowing that my mom and my dad, they could just turn on the television every Saturday and watch me play without traveling. And uh, and if the school, the private school, I know it was going to be a challenge for me on and off the court. And if things didn't work out for me on the court, off the court would be something where prepared for me for the entire, my entire livelihood. So that's one of the main reasons I decided to go to Wake. Yeah. How much, uh, obviously, playing in the ACC, you learned about it, but how much did you know before that? Because you didn't have the ACC network. You didn't have social media and the internet at that time. How'd you really learn about some of the schools and some of the rivalries? As you said, you were more in big East country at that time. No, it was more ACC. You know, Maryland was right now backyard. Um, big East, even though big East was just coming on the scene because you just had Georgetown and Syracuse was just starting to, you know, you've really heard about, but Maryland always, have been something that we've been following because our former one of our colleagues from Dunbar uh, went to Maryland, uh, Ernie Graham, Ernie Graham. And we all felt like we possibly may go to uh, Maryland. But after the Ernie's situation at Maryland, we felt like, you know, Coach Lester Giselle didn't give him his fair shake. So we decided to look elsewhere. And that's one of the reasons why we didn't go to uh, Maryland. Um, but the ACC always been something that's been in our backyard. I think the Big East was just coming on the scene and became such a, a really fast, rapid, uh, popular conference because of Patrick Young and Georgetown and Coach John Thompson. I think that's what kind of, you know, started that process. But ACC always been something that always we knew about. Yeah, 1983 to 1987, you're at Wake Forest. And again, you excel there. Why in your mind did you continue to excel? It's one thing on the high school level, but then taking it to the next level, mentioning, you know, some of the big names that you played against and you guarded. Uh, 
how did it, how was it that you excelled as well as you did? Well, I'm thankful for my, you know, my, my, my growth and my toolage that I had at Dunbar, all my upbringings, but, you know, just continue to grow, getting older. You feel like you knew the game a lot more. Um, and each year you feel like you want to bring something to the table. Uh, my freshman year was a very learning experience playing behind Danny Young. First time I ever had to sit behind someone, but I think it did well for me uh, understanding how to be successful as a point guard in that league. And, you know, you got to learn before you can, uh, you, you got to kind of be a follower before you can lead. So that opportunity presented itself. But then once I had that understanding the ACC and how to, you know, excel, I mean, I was off to the races and just being able to have quality players around you. Uh, we was fortunate enough my first two years, but then uh, we got uh, Kenny Green decided to go to uh, pro early and left us kind of shorthanded. But, you know, we was competitive. We very competed, but it allowed me to, you know, start become more uh, aggressive scoring the basketball with the changing of the coaching when uh, Coach Bob Stack came and took a ball. Uh, came out head coach. Yeah, junior and senior years, you really blossomed, average over double figures and and almost 10 assists a game as well. So you near to double-double average-wise. What was it about you passing the basketball? And and was that something that you enjoyed more than maybe scoring the basketball? How much joy did you get in the assist as opposed to the points? Well, I always, I mean, I that was at the forefront in terms of making guys around me better, being able to see them score as opposed to, you score. I mean, I felt like I can score the basketball. It was just a matter of uh, being that true throwback guard, knowing that how to continue to keep everybody engaged and being able to do that is making everybody feel part of it and giving them the basketball at the right time where they can be successful. And because I always felt like I can get mine. And and the, the joy, would, as you mentioned, passing the basketball was always something that I had a, a very more – uh, a joy to do. Uh, it was more joyful to give the ball up as opposed to score it yourself. You know, that just, I felt like that's more responsibility of a guard, of a point guard, especially being able to uh, seek others first before yourself. And the defense was solid. As you said, your size may be an advantage when it came to the defense, average almost uh, three steals your junior and senior year. When you're defensively on somebody, again, you're smaller you're frustrating them. Can you can you see? Is there always a point in the game from the opposing point guard that you see? Okay, I have this guy. You know, he's he's frustrated because I'm all over him right now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole part of having a, your pulse on the entire game, um, knowing how to be able to control the tempo and so forth, um, knowing what the impact and effect that you have on on their on your opponent, and and, and that, that that goes hand in hand, and that's one of abilities that I had to where, you know, I didn't even have to score the basketball for us to win by 20 points. Being able to have that understanding, distributed basketball, having up-tempo type of uh, of, of uh, uh, game plan and being able to execute half court as well. So, you know, that was one of the, I felt, brilliant gifts that I had in terms of being able to understand the game and understand that so much to the point to where, you know, you only have to score if need be, but you always want to keep your opponent a little off balance. Where did that defensive uh, tenacity come from, that mindset that you had? Well, just growing up, uh, knowing, and it start from Coach Leon Howard, who taught me and Reggie Williams, um, who gave us that, that blessing and had us in the gym at the age of seven years old, uh, just toolage in the, I mean, drilling us day in and day out. Uh, driven through trash cans, around chairs, shooting over broomsticks, and being able to contain your man. We used to do this mirror drill where we just had to make sure we contained our guy in front of us, regardless of whichever way he was going. And that's something that stuck with me as a kid and, and I always enhanced that as I got older, being able to contain my man, keep him in front of me, but at times let him go in front and play defense from behind to kind of, again, keep him off balance. 187 Francis Pomeray Award winner for uh, the best player, six foot and under. You're the team MVP. And then you make it onto the Team USA roster as well. Still college players at that time. What was that experience like for you? And, and again, did you feel like, okay, I belong here 
with these guys. Oh, absolutely. It was unbelievable for one, uh, being able to get the call to get the tryout to go out to Colorado to uh, compete against 50 players for 12 spots. I mean, it was amazing. But you're playing against the best, the best collegiate players that that played the game. And that was something of joy that I welcome wholeheartedly. And being able to, you know, be one of those 15 uh, members to go over and take part of the USA Goodwill Games. I mean, it was such an honor and a blessing. And being able to fulfill our dreams of bringing home that gold medal, being the last collegiate teams to do that. Um, I mean, that was really surreal moment for us, uh, standing on the podium, holding that cup up with that gold medal around your neck, representing your country, not just your, uh, your team or individual, but the entire country. I mean, that was very special. And uh, I, I never forget that moment one bit. Yeah, that's what a lot of people say when you're playing for your country. It's it's a little different. And, and again, it's the best in the in the country as well that's playing on that team. So certainly a, a, a great and deserving honor to be on that team. And you, you leave Wake Forest as the assistant, the Steels leader. I think you still are. Uh, what does that mean to you to still have that record so many years later? You graduated in 1987. Well, that let me know that I put in the body of work and, you know, you was out there trying to do it. But I wish that it could be broken. That means that someone else is really – out there impacting the game on both ends of the floors and being able to compete and be put their team in the best position where they can win. Um, having that record still, I mean, it's an honor. I, don't get me wrong, but again, I'm all about someone coming along, just like I'm waiting for someone to come along at five foot two to be the shortest player to ever play in the NBA. Yeah, at 5'3", you're still the shortest player to play in the NBA. So we'll, we'll see if that holds up and how long that holds up. But, you know, before the NBA, this was 87 again. The draft was later on that year. But you played for the, the Rhode Island Gulls of the USBL kind of in between the draft. Take us through that and, and the, the mindset of, of getting ready for the draft, playing on that team. And that's exactly what it was, uh, preparing myself for the draft. Um, season now, college season was over early. Uh, being able to put myself in that uh, in a situation where you can stay in shape uh, for whatever situation uh, they may call upon um, and playing against professionals at the time world be free sugar ray uh Leonard, sugar ray richardson was playing at the time so we was playing against uh, some again some professional former professional players and i felt like it would give me the experience uh once i take that next step uh, for the NBA. It was a month away. Um, I cut it short a little bit because I hurt my ankle and I didn't want to jeopardize my chances in terms of doing the draft. So um, I enjoyed my entire time playing with the Rhode Island Gulls. The Abaddons, who was the owners at the time, they were some great uh, individuals. Uh, working with Coach uh, Whitaker was also awesome. So I really enjoyed my time. I stay in Rhode Island. Hey, you mentioned you, you, know, you injured yourself there. Nowadays, I doubt anybody would do something like that to go in that league before the NBA draft. But again, obviously it worked out. You averaged over 22 points and over eight assists. Again, was it a, a way to show people that, hey, I belong, you know, on the next level, the NBA level now, with despite my size? Well, yeah, that was another opportunity for me to showcase that I can score the basketball as well. And that's mainly what I went down there to do, not so much to kind of run the team, facilitate, just to go and and score. And of course, I knew I was going to get my assist at the same time. But just to kind of be more offensive minded um, to when the draft came, then you was ready. It was no transitional type of situation that you had to get ready for. So in 1987, later that year, then the Washington Bullets select you. Tell, tell us about that and, and what that was like. You know, it's I'm sure it wasn't on TV like it is nowadays, the NBA draft. How did you find out and and, and what was that moment like for you? Well, we was actually in New York. Um, we was invited to the draft, um, knowing that your name was possibly going to be select called, not knowing what number it was going to be called, um, just a possibility that it will will be called. And having me and Reggie um, and Reggie Lewis, we at the draft and being able to, you know, sit in there and take part of that and then hearing first your teammate go at the number four, I mean, it was such a, a unbelievable moment um, knowing Reg was – already taken uh got that experience where we've been dreaming around for so long and just sitting there being nerve-wracking just waiting for that call and then at the 12th pick and the washington bullet selected you know time on mosey bows that's when 
the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders. And it was a surreal moment going up there, shaking the commissioner, David Sternhand. First time he felt like he can look down on someone as I look him eye to eye, I should say, <laughs> in terms of being there, had to look up. So it was an unbelievable experience. And uh, I tell you, it's something that I'm grateful and thankful that I had to, I was able to give him that opportunity. Yeah, as you said, 12th overall and not just going to the NBA, but kind of the local team as well with the Washington Bullets. Was that a plus? Was that a bonus to kind of stay in the area where you had family and you grew up? There was a bonus. Uh, going right, felt like it was right in my backyard. Um, it could be a bonus and a curse, you know, when that says they say, but it was a bonus for me just having family. I'm a family-oriented type of individual, but just having everybody around, sharing in your success, taking part of it. Uh, being able to get to you easily as opposed to just, you know, talking to you or calling you or hearing about it. Um, so it was very good in that standpoint. Unfortunately, you know, it just didn't work out for us in the long term with the organization. Um, but, you know, I was thankful that they took me. Um, I felt like, you know, during the latter part of the season that they was trying to use me and Manute more as a novelty act and lure people to the, to the arena to sell tickets as opposed to, more so just the team itself. Yeah, you mentioned Manu Bowl, uh, 7-7, the tallest player in the NBA. You're the shortest player in the NBA. The, the famous picture uh, from Sports Illustrated that has you guys side-by-side uh, side as well. But do you remember, you know, the debuting? It was the Atlanta Hawks, November 6th. Do you remember that first game and the, and the emotions or maybe the what's going through your mind going onto the court, your first very first NBA game? Yeah, I mean, that's what exactly was. It was a nerve-wracking. I mean, but it was, a, you know, those were the drillings that you wanted to feel, the little butterflies, until the game started. Um, it, it was exciting. Uh, playing against one of your little friends in Spud, you know, where we played in, in college for quite some time, uh, being the two shortest that's in the lead at that time. Um, it, it was it was an opportunity, you know, to kind of go out there and put yourself on that stage you know, as a professional player. Um, so that was, it was nerve wracking and exciting at the same time. Yeah. You mentioned you and Spud Webb with uh, NC state days and then with the Atlanta Hawks as well. And, you know, so you start with the bullets and then the expansion draft for the Charlotte Hornets happened and you were left unprotected. Were you approaching that as, as an opportunity maybe for you? And as you said, it didn't quite work out with the bullets. Was this an opportunity for you that you were, were hoping to take advantage of? Well, yeah, that's the way I looked at it. I mean, being let go from the Washington Bullets after being told that, you know, things were about to be handed the keys and we're going to get certain players in terms of fit the style of play that you like playing um, and not being able to, to see that through. And now you got to go to another organization, which is a brand new organization. But luckily for me, I was coming to a familiar area in Carolina where when I always came here, they always had open arms, you know, the hospitality. Um, and I felt like it was a new team. It was a mixed team. We had younger players mixed in with older players, myself, Del Curry, Rex Chapman, um, along with the Kirk Lambis and Kelly Trapucas, Earl Kirk, the other world. But again, I felt like this was the start for me. This was the opportunity where I can grow with this organization and make my, um, you know, my standpoint in terms of in the lead, what I'm capable of doing. And as opposed to, you know, it was looked upon as a, a kid that could come off the bench and uh, be a little spark plug and that sort of thing. Um, but I, always, I looked much deeper than that, and I felt like I had an opportunity to really do something special here. And also a teammate of Brian Rouse and one of our uh, previous guests on our show, episode number 21. Uh, but again, it, it obviously clicked. It was a, a, a new team, the jerseys, the fashion, some of the big names as well. How fun was it back in the day? That was 1988. You were there from 88 to 97, but the early days of the Charlotte, <laughs> how fun was it to be part of that organization? Oh, it was fun. I mean, we felt like we started everything. We created a culture, the tradition, and thus far. I mean, it was exciting. The teal and purple, as you alluded to, was was a hot color. It was a hot item to pick up, especially with the starter jackets. Uh, we had pleats in our shorts, which Alexander Julie created an unbelievable uniform. First time that a team wore some pleats in their shorts. Uh, but we was fashionable, you know, he was making a fashion statement. So we was pretty much uh, uh, accepting that new national attention that we was receiving. Um, and then all of a sudden we start to get quality players such as the, the, 
Oh, sorry about that. Such as the. Alonzo Mourning, Larry Johnson. You had yes. Del Curry as well. I mean, you had some talent on this team as well. And Rex Chapman. Absolutely. I mean, that was the the manifestation manifestation of the in terms of our progress from going from 19 to 20 games to 31 games and then 44 games and then 50 games. I mean, being able to acquire those type of players, uh, stuff, feel like in that we had a chance to really become a really special team. And then especially when we got Alonzo, um, that was the, we felt like that was the missing piece that we was looking for in order to take it to that next level. You know, unfortunately, you know, it just, we weren't able to see it all the way through. You know, it looked like always that ugly head of the NBA's shows up some, during some point during people's career. Well, when three, I was about to trade yeah. to Miami. Yeah, three playoff appearances, though, for, for you guys. And uh, as you know, you know, North Carolina is a hotbed for college basketball. But then, you know, this team comes along. Did you see that as, as well? The fan base come once this team, you know, was formed and, and you guys had some success? Well, the fan base has always been there from day one. We started off with 24,000 fans. And was able to break attendance all the way my ninth my nine years there, um, and that's the beauty of that knowing that we had that type of support. Um, I recall, and I knew it was special the very first game that we played played Cavalier, the Cleveland Cavaliers with their star power with Mark Price, Brad Doherty, and Ron Harper, and uh, the, everybody came dressed in the ladies in gowns, the men dressed in tuxedos, and we wound up losing by forty points that day. But as we walked off the court. They stood up and gave us a standing ovation. That's when we knew this was a very special place, and they was going to be with us through thick and thin. And they was our sixth man all the way through. And uh, and hearing that 24,000 screaming fan, it was electrifying in that building each and every night. The NBA was different in, in electrifying at that time as well. I mean, again, 88 to 97, you're with the Hornets. What was the NBA like in your mind at that time and maybe the, the peak of, of the NBA and, and some of the big names out there? Well, it was growing. I mean, it started from Magic Johnson when he came in, and again, it continued to grow. I mean, Commissioner Adam, uh, Commissioner David Stern did a tremendous job uh, working with the collecting CBA, collective bargain, where we became his partners. And then as you've seen it continue to grow, the salaries continue to grow, and then where it is today, um, it, it's, it's at a unbelievable high. And the game is a global game. We got a lot of European games players that's in taking part of our game today. Uh, people all around the world now could dream about possibly become an NBA player. People in Philippines, the people in India. I mean, we Serbia, we got them all over in every country. So it's amazing how far the game has come and where, you know, during our time, it was a lot more physical, uh, less European players. Players had positions. Seven-footers was playing with their back towards the basket. You can hand check. Uh, you can foul very hard. Um, but I still love the game today. It's exciting. A lot of people like seeing scoring, and um, and that's where we are today. So, in other words, defense ruled the day back then, and you're a defensive guy. So, who did you like guarding? Who did you not like guarding? Who really challenged you to guard them during your NBA career? Well, I like guarding everybody. I mean, that's just the competitiveness that I love from the magic all the way down to the spud, Michael Adams. And uh, spoke with my grab, so I enjoyed that. But you know, guards like a Magic Johnson or Penny Hardaway, who has the ability to pass the basketball and at the same time score with their back towards the basket. Not many players are capable of doing that. So I had that understanding, knowing that that it only take a few seconds uh, to play that type of defense on those players. Plus, I was pretty strong, and I can keep them away from the basket. But guys like that, and a guy like Mark Price, who was a sharpshooter like Steph Curry. You couldn't help off of him and not one bit because he'll make you pay. So guys like him and, and Magic and Penny, I'll say the two. The How about as far as your, your teammates? You know, who are, who are ones that, you know, again, you said you like to the assist maybe more than the points. Who's somebody that you knew, okay, I'm going to set them up. They're going to knock down this shot. Oh, that's Del Curry all day long. You know, his. well, I should say that's, as people say, Steph Curry, dad, Del Curry. Yeah, that's what you got to say. <laughs> it's not just Del Curry no more. 
There, there you go. There you go. Well, again, you had great success with him, but then a knee injury, right? In, in 1995, and you had surgery there. What was that like? Was that the first big injury you, you had in your career? How did you approach that? Yeah, that was the very first big injury that I ever had, and it was very difficult for me. I thought I was going to miss just six to eight weeks. I wound up missing the entire season, um, and that's when I discovered acupuncture to try to get some strength back in my knee uh, because I have bone on bone. I had to pull that pressure off of it. Um, but uh, luckily, I came back as I discovered it and came back a little stronger um, than, I, than I thought I was going to be and was able to fulfill the rest of my obligations in terms of my contract and was able to sign another one. Uh, and, you know, so it was, a, it was a good challenging moment during that time. Uh, but it was rough because right afterwards I had to do space jam, you know, when I was hurting, I have up there trying to hop around and, and do my scenes. Um, but it got a lot better because again, after getting over the loss to Chicago during that series, I mean, during that uh, summer, um, I had to get back stronger and the only thing I was thinking about is getting healthy again. All right. We can't just go right past space jam here. We got to touch more <laughs> on this as well, because, uh, the original is, is definitely set itself apart. What, what did you know about this movie when, when you signed on to do it? What did you think it was? I didn't know. I had no clue, no idea. When they said space jam, I'm like space jam. Then they was talking about, well, Looney Tunes is going to be part of the movie. You know, they're going to have Bugs Bunny and uh, Tweety Bird and all that. And I'm like, well, how are they going to make that work? And I then once I got on the set, then you start to see how they're making it work. Uh, but it was fun. It was really fun. I didn't realize it was going to turn out to be such an iconic movie uh, today. But just having, you know, being on the set and with the guys and having taken part of it and had the success that it did, I mean, it was such a, it's so cool because the kids from six to 30, they only know me from Space Jam. They only realized I had a basketball career. What was it like working with all those guys after playing against them, especially somebody as competitive as Michael Jordan? What was it like working on the set with them? It was amazing. I mean, we had so much fun. I mean, you know, colleagues, fraternity brothers, in terms of being in the NBA, and we just had so much fun. MJ loved to play cards, so we're in this trailer playing cards. And I know one day we had an uh, opportunity to shoot an early scene, and Larry decided to let a man who never cut an African American hair in his life to get a haircut, and he cut it, gave it like a bow cut. So we had to wind up counseling that shoot that day <laughs> and reshooting it late on that afternoon. Um, so I mean, he had so much fun. And that also, that was the same time where they built uh, Michael's gym for him to kind of work out to get him back in shape for the upcoming season. So Larry Bird's haircut kind of put the production on halt. No, not Larry Bird, Larry Johnson's haircut. Oh, okay. Larry Johnson. I got yeah, you. I got yeah, you. Larry okay. Johnson, he went in the trailer and uh, he wanted to get a haircut. And a man, Afri uh, uh, a man who never cut an African-American hair before gotcha. in his life decided that he's going to try, and boy, <laughs> did he ever. <laughs> Don't work out that well. Well, when was the last time you watched Space Jam? Do you have copies of it? Did you share it with your kids when, when they were younger? Oh, absolutely. They was, I mean, they watched every square inches of square, uh, Space Jam. And, of course, it still comes on to this day, and every now and then when I'm channel searching, I may come across it, and when I see it, you know, I got to turn in on it. <laughs> Well, that's great. That's uh, again, off the court. Let's go back on the court here because you, as you said, you came back from the knee injury a couple of years after that, then in 97, you get traded away from the Hornets to the Golden State Warriors. What was that moment like? Because obviously you found a home in Charlotte. You were so beloved there as a player at, with the Hornets. What was that like? Oh, that was a sad day. Sad moment for me, my family, everybody involved. I felt like the city as well because they start Power 98 start having everybody toot horns on my way out. Um, but, you know, it, it came to an end, and like everything does. Um, I just appreciate my time there and look forward for, and that's how I always look in life, for a new adventure, new endeavors, and, and try to make the best out of those as well. I didn't hop on, you know, I had to leave Charlotte and, uh, and didn't have to say anything negative about the city or the organization. Um, it just it just ran its course, and when it did, you know, I accepted it and moved on, and 
and try to do things that I know I was capable of doing for the community in, in San Francisco and Oakland at the time, which I was able to do, play for Coach P.J. Calissimo, who was recruiting me as a collegiate player. Uh, but I didn't realize what I was walking myself into once I got there. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. As you said, you know, P.J., you know, recruited you to Seton Hall. Then you play for him there. You're there for a couple of years. Uh, then it's on to Toronto. And, and you know, the plus there, I guess, is Del Curry is there. So you guys are reunited. Is that a moment and is that a pairing that, that again, is is fresh in your mind going to Toronto? Yeah, well, Del wasn't there at first. He and I went there together. You know, I'm Butch Carter was kind of came and recruited us, basically. I was a free agent and he happened to be in Charlotte that day. A day and, and he called us called me over and I went and met him and actually Dell was about to sign with Milwaukee and as he was entering to a verbal commitment with Milwaukee you know I talked to him and told him that listen you know we had the opportunity we can go to Toronto and Butch Carter you know felt like you know Dell was in his contract so Dell was able to get out of his contract and was able to sign which he was already in a two-year deal, wound up getting a three-year deal at Toronto. And, of course, I wound up signing there for one year and then wound up re-signing for four years. Yeah, there are a couple of years. And then you kind of bounce around a little bit after that. Your, your final game, January 27, 2001. So you, you say you remember that first game. Do you remember the, the final game as well? For Toronto? Well, in, in your in your playing career. I think that was oh, the last yeah, time you yeah, actually played or you played – Yes, I do remember my final game for the Raptors. I mean, for the Raptors. Um, actually, I was still hurt. And I played in Miami just to try to test it and see if, you know, I was, you know, strong enough to get back out there. And, of course, I wasn't able to get back out there. And then from that moment, I shut it down and got traded to New York and never played since. What goes through your mind as a, as a pro athlete when you come to a really realization that it's time to retire? Uh, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's over. And, you know, you kind of hopefully put yourself in a position where you can make that transition, which I've did. You know, I, I started to delve into real estate. Um, so it wasn't a, a big uh, thought process in order to talk about what I was going to do. Um, I just dove right into it. It's not the same uh, with basketball, you don't get the same adrenaline competitiveness, but it was something that I was interested in and didn't even look back once I made that decision to retire. Well, you weren't far from the game, though. You went into coaching after that, right? You were with the Charlotte Sting for a while as a head coach, uh, college coach as well. What did, what did coaching do for you as far as that basketball fix is concerned? Well, coaching was always a part of my DNA, you know, being a player, being a, at my position. Felt like he was an extension of the coach. And then being able to have an opportunity to become on the sideline to work with high school players, uh, giving them that toolage to understand how to be a student athlete, and then working with the WNBA, uh, the professional women, which was very professional, understood what their goals were, their tasks, came in, gave me everything they had. Um, and, and, and I loved every moment, every moment of it, um, watching them develop and grow and treat the game to what it truly is. And um, and that's why the league has been successful as it is. You've had a lot of honors. Uh, I know you were recently inducted into the North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame, an honor I think you got last year. You were inducted here recently. Uh, among those honors, is that one of the biggest that, that you look at? You're also in the Wake Forest Sports Hall of Fame as well. Uh, well, I appreciate the, the, in, the induction of the Hall of Fame, the North Carolina Hall of Fame as well, Wake. Uh, so I appreciate that. Um, being not from North Carolina, but spending most of your entire adulthood in North Carolina and the things you have accomplished and uh, for them to award that uh, type of honor and recognition, I'm truly humble and, and appreciative of it. And uh, especially going in with some of the people that we was able to go in with, Toy Houghton, the crew, uh, so it, uh, as well as uh, Newsom. So it was, it was, it was a great moment, uh, great opportunity for me and my family. So I'm so thankful. Again, you have a new book out called Muggsy. This is your second book, though. You wrote one earlier in the Land of the Giants, right? What what led you to to write this one and, and maybe a little bit more comprehensive, uh, you know, story of your of your life? Well, I mean, you did allude to the first one. The first one I did was in the Land of the Giants, was the early part of my career. 
Um, you know, I was just diving into the NBA. My pops had just passed away. My good friend Reggie Lewis had lost his life a week later. And when they came to me to approach me about it, you know, I was all in just to do it. Uh, this one, I had a lot more time to live, um, a little more substance in it. Uh, I also, I've been removed from the game for about 20 years, and I wanted to kind of put something positive out there for not only for kids, but for just for anyone who go through any type of changes in life, which we all do, and who start to sometimes second guess, you know, their confidence and beliefs of things that they want to accomplish. And I want them to understand that we, you know, you can be whatever you want to be and whoever you want to be. Um, it's all about the confidence that you have within yourself, the the fear, the fearlessness that you have within others, and just being able to, you know, chase a passion that you have each and every day and about the relationships that I was able to impact some of my current players, uh, former players that I play with, as well as the current players in, in today's game and Stephen Curry and Chris Paul, you know, and in relationship me and my wife, you know, we divorced 10 years and all of a sudden we found ourselves back with one another, which is kind of unheard of. And uh, just a lot of things that you go through that some folks could probably you know, read and pick up and to say, okay, well, this is something that I can relate to and take something from it and kind of apply it to my life to be more positive as going forward. I really enjoy the memory lane segments that you have at the end of each of the chapter. It's kind of, uh, you know, somebody's reflection on you, whether it was a coach, whether it was a player, whether it was, uh, I think your wife or your daughter, um, was that a plus or, or, or a must to have part of this book, something a little bit different? Yeah, I want to do a little different than the actual, you know, memoirs that you put out um, coming from other people's perspective and uh, feeling like that the impact that I had on their lives, as well as me feel like the impact I had on that. And I mean, with the, the impacts they had on my life as well. So um, and that's one of the reasons why we did it that way. And uh, I think that it turned out to be really a good read. Um, not just biased because it's mine, but I just felt like we captured every, it all and everybody expressed themselves, you know, very eloquently away how they felt. As you say, they're the godfather of small ball. Do you, do you find, do guards gravitate to you? Do they come to you for advice? Those that are trying to get maybe from the high school to the college level or for the college level to the NBA level? Well, I've always been tooling and guy mentoring uh, guys in terms of that regards from the Chris Pauls to the Isaiah Thomas, the Nate Robinsons that all played and lead, and just general individuals that's in college, kids that are just trying to play the game. Um, I just love passing on that information. I always believe that you need to pass it forward. Uh, you do no justice by holding it within yourself. If it helps them in terms of become the better player that they can possibly be, then I'm all for that uh, because information is the key. That's what allowed me to be the player that I am today or that I was today, that I was back then in terms of trying to pursue my dream uh, without that information from Mr. Howard, no telling what a type of player I could have been. Tell us about the Muggsy Bogues Foundation, some of the work that you're doing through that as well. Yeah, I'm so proud of our family and thank you for that, for the Muggsy Bogues Family Foundation dot, uh, dot org. They can go and, and check that out. Um, but we, we love to try to, well, we do empower at-risk youth and families to try to live a better quality life by addressing the food insecurities in our community, access to an education as well as job training. And we partnered with CPCC, a trade-bound school that really uh, emphasizes on uh, trade skills and being able to oversee our program and being able to award these kids these scholarships to where it kind of wipe out their financial uh, obligations at the last year there. Um, uh, Tuition, I mean, that's what really what is all about, because we want to make sure that they have an opportunity to not worry about debt and they can kind of go and just transcend, translate right into that working world, which we hopefully um, take place in terms of the things that we're trying to provide them for. Coming from your background, from the projects in Baltimore, is this something like this a little bit more meaningful from, for you because you've seen it, you've kind of lived this and and you know, the life that you're trying to help out? Absolutely. I mean, that's what's, that's everything. Now, I always felt that 
once you know i get in a position to be fortunate enough to help others you know that's something my mom always instilled in us those are the principles that we carry around us each and every day so i'm so thankful that we're able to be in this position to provide these type of resources for these individuals again you're probably best known as a, as a charlotte hornet you still do stuff with the hornets you're still involved with that organization yes i serve as an ambassador for the hornets and still involved with them 100 how else can people follow you obviously you're on social media how can they follow you and, and continue to follow what you're doing in the community with your foundation you mentioned there as well yeah they can go find the mugs and family.org and they can follow us all the way through in terms of the things they want to uh, keep up with or if they want to volunteer and participate and become uh, a member as well as uh, we always love their prayers as well as dollars if they want to donate as well but you know that they can always follow me on social media you know the real mugsy on instagram as well as all my other platforms that's out there and the name mugsy we we, we have to dive into that where, where did that come from does, does it come from your defense no it just come from a Growing up in the inner city of Baltimore, um, stealing the ball as a kid, mugging everybody. And a show at the time used to come on called the Bowery Boys, and they kind of tied their boats together. And I've been Muggsy ever since. Did you gravitate to Muggsy, or, or did it take a while for you to to go with that as your nickname? No, no, I had to gravitate for a little bit. I used to be Apple as a family name. Uh, so Muggsy had to grow on me for sure. Well, again, you're so much more than just the shortest man to ever play in the NBA at 5'3". Muggsy doing some great jobs and great work in the community right now. We appreciate you spending a, a little time with us and sharing your story. And again, uh, for more on the story, Muggsy, the book is out now. Go check it out and and you'll get a little bit more in-depth on some of the things that we touched on here in this uh, interview. But Muggsy, I can't thank you enough for, for spending a little time with us. It's a, it's a pleasure to have uh, finally had a chance to meet you and, and talk with you here today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to finishing out this book tour. We got one on Saturday, May the 21st at Park Road. Uh, so look forward to, you know, the folks to come out to enjoy us and celebrate, you know, my memoir. Well, great stories, great inspirational stories as well from Tyrone Muggsy Bogues, longtime NBA player, now doing some great things. Check out his book again from Triumph Books. It is Muggsy out now. And our thanks to Scott King his daughter, Brittany Bogues, as well, for helping arrange this interview. Also, some of the highlights that you saw there, some of the footage from the Dunbar Poets Facebook page, YouTube page, and Crunchy Man Sopa as well, some of the stuff that you saw. So our thanks to them for helping provide us and helping us tell the complete story of Muggsy Bogues. Again, that puts the wraps on number 28, episode 28. Episode 29 comes your way soon. Be sure to subscribe and like what you're seeing if, in fact, you do. We thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week for another edition of In the Front Row with Mike DeCaro. Have a great day, everybody.